Thank you for listening to the If You Market podcast brought to you by Mountaintop Data. We are the only podcast that markets the shit out of it. I'm your host, Sky Cassidy, and uh, Carla Joe, our co-host, will be, will be off today. But uh, we'll be speaking with Eric Haas of Arctic Cool about entering a market with a new product. Eric's an industry leader in product line management, merchandising, sourcing and development, innovation, e-commerce and professional league licensing within uh, within the apparel and accessory soft goods categories. Uh, while at New Era Cap, he oversaw a 200 million lifestyle category and helped secure the NFL on-field license in 2012. At Under Armour, he grew business from 30 million in 2013 to 250 million in 2017. Eric is now the president and CEO of a 100% e-commerce apparel brand, that's uh, Arctic Cool, and uh, directing all aspects of product line management, merchandising, sourcing and development, demand planning, sales, customer service, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Eric, we're really excited to have you on today. I think some of the listeners at this point are saying that sounds consumer. Eric is on today, even though his company is a consumer company, to talk about entering the market with a new product because he has a lot of expertise in, in that specific area. So really happy to have you on, Eric. Thanks for joining us. Hey, great. Thanks so much. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. I am really excited to be able to uh, speak with all the listeners and let them kind of hear my perspective on a few topics. Yeah, so the, the new product, I think initially I had, uh, I had been dubbing this episode the competitive analysis. Um, episode, but that's really kind of the one step within this whole entering a a market with a new product. Um, so maybe before we get into that, let's kind of get into you a little bit. Um, you know, gave a little bit of an intro there, but can you tell us a little bit more about about yourself, um, your past? Sounds like you have some interesting stuff there with uh, you know a lot of sports franchises, that kind of stuff going on, and how you yeah, got to sure. where you're at now. For sure, yeah. So. Um, I've definitely had a wild ride in the last 10 years. Um, I got my start really in the apparel um, slash accessories industry um, with New Era Cap um, in Buffalo, New York. And, uh, you know, that career path, I didn't even really know was an opportunity to even get into. Um, so uh, a, lot, right, a lot of what I do right now as well is I try to um, speak with local colleges and universities about getting into um, a product field. A lot of people have ideas and concepts and things that they'd love to be able to bring to market, um, but they don't necessarily know how when they walk into a Dick's Sporting Goods or they walk into um, a Models or you know a big box store, they don't really know how that product gets there, nor do they really understand um, all of the back end work that goes into that. So right, the classic kind of I've got this great idea. Why didn't it ever catch on? And it's because they they aren't in the industry. They don't really know how to make it actually happen. Correct. And there's very few um, universities or colleges that even have a program like that. And so that's something that I'm actually passionate about as well as being able to really um, let people and enlighten them a little bit about uh, my career path and how they can potentially get into a career field like that. Um, but I started there um, and had a lot at New Era Cap and had a great opportunity to really um, be immersed into um, a product line management role. Um, everything from really packing samples, really working my way, my way up from the uh, ground all the way up to um, where I was overseeing the category, um, which was great because I got to see it really from the ground up. And I think a lot of times um, people don't necessarily know that you've got to put the work in. They have an expectation when they come out of a college or a university that, hey, I'm going to come in and I'm going to have a team that has, you know, 10 people underneath me and I've got all these great ideas. But the reality is you do have to work your way up. You do have right. to be 
you know, down in the salesman sample room, packing samples to support your sales team that's out there. Um, and all that goes into really bringing product to market, analyzing if, data. If they're lucky, they'll be one of those people in the team of 10 that somebody else is overseeing. They're not going to be the, the come out of college, be the leader type of thing. It's interesting. You're saying you're, you know, you're, you want to kind of educate people on how that process works. And uh, maybe, maybe what we go over today can help a little bit because it dawns on me that um, with the topic of entering a market with a new product, that's kind of exactly what these people are looking to do. What you're talking about there, it's just the person is the product or their idea kind of, and it's, um, they're the product and they need to figure out how to enter the market of getting their ideas actually created kind of. Um, so they, they need to do some competitive research and figure out what's the process and all that kind of stuff. For sure, 100%. And so um, I had a great opportunity at New Era. And um, from there, I decided to um, ha take another opportunity and go to a major sports brand, um, Under Armour. Um, and so I, I made the move from Buffalo, New York, down to Baltimore, Maryland, um, relocated my family down there, um, and was able to start out with one category, um, had some success with that category. Eventually, by the time I ended there, uh, I was over top of roughly around a $300 million category. Um, I had a team of four direct reports that were reporting into me, and I had indirectly um, sourcing and development teams, design teams that all kind of worked in one, what I like to call really a functional wheel. And that's really the core of how a product, is, how a product comes to market um, in product line management, is really you're the center of that wheel. And across to all the spools of that wheel are all of your different functions. So you have sourcing, you have design, you have planning, you have merchandising, you have all these different functions that go around, but it truly is that product to the PM or product manager's role to be able to make sure that you keep that wheel going and you keep putting oil into that wheel. So you went from a, a $300 million um, group and decided to throw all that away and start your own thing. Yeah, so um, it, it was actually uh, a really, really, really interesting and, and risky per se, um, choice to really go down this path. Um, I've always been an entrepreneur at heart, and I had this um, opportunity to really own a company um, that was really innovative in the space, but from all the trend reports and everything that I was reading and the competitive analysis that I saw out there, there was truly an opportunity in the cooling apparel and accessory space. Um, there were a few little smaller brands that were out there that were trying to um, own that space, but it was really a lot of low-hanging fruit, and quite frankly, um, the opportunity from a functional product um, didn't really exist out in the market. And so, um, my wife was three months pregnant, and um, you know, had a great stable job. And I said, "Hey, uh, I really kind of want to take this chance." Um, and you know, she's like, "Hey, listen, if this is something you've wanted to do forever, like I'll support you behind it." And uh, I took a chance, and you know, it's it's um it's definitely paid off so far. Um, I will say the biggest difference from having um, a major brand backing you is that now when you're kind of um, in your own brand and you're creating it, there's way more exposure to when you make when you make one decision, how it impacts a lot of different things. Where when you're in a much larger brand, you uh, you have a lot of more you have a lot more cross-functional support to help to support you. So you do really have to roll up your sleeves. Um, and really figure a lot of things out. And hey, are you going to get everything right all the time? Absolutely not. But the great thing about it is that you're constantly learning on how to tweak your brand and evolve it um, to make sure that you're giving your consumer um, the best product that they're, look that they're looking for, but also listening. And I think that that's something that's really important with 
a brand in its um, in its infancy is truly listening to the consumer, um, right. listening to them to the things that they that they're telling you because I, I feel like um, that's kind of the kiss of death for brands is when they stop listening. Yeah, so so you have a lot less redundancy, a lot more risk, kind of, but you're also so much closer to the product, and you've really got your hands on on everything much more now. Um, For sure. So let's let's jump over to the uh, the the whole topic of entering a market with a new product. Um, yeah. And we can use your company. Seems like it would be convenient as a as a template for what we're talking about here. And okay. again, this is a consumer company, so let's stay away from things that are. Um, purely consumer and stick more to the theoretical maybe that's a yeah. promise I always make to the listeners and uh, so when we get somewhere that's a little on the gray air the line there for uh, for consumer marketing we want to make sure that we um, we steer away from it but um, entering a new market or entering a market with a new product you know you saw this market and said hey there's there's space here you know there's a there's an underserved area something like that um, and decided to go into it is there a general overview of what you look at when you go to there or, or, or a specific kind of list of steps that you can go through for us? Yeah. So I think first and foremost with anybody who is trying to bring a new product to market, um, it's really trying to identify what is your product trying to solve? Are you trying to solve something that has demand or are you trying to create demand? And I think those are two vastly different approaches that you have to take. Um, the latter being trying to create demand um, is a much more, uh, there's, there's much more, there's many more barriers to entry when you're trying to do that because you're trying to create a category or create um, uh, something that someone doesn't necessarily know that they need. Where right. if you are trying to create something that there is demand that's out there for and you've identified that based on your market research, um, it's much more easier to go after that market and refine how to speak to a consumer and identify who the core consumer is within that uh, market opportunity. So convincing people that they want something or that they're interested versus just going and finding the people who, who want this, this yeah, kind of a, I, I mean, sure. I guess the, the bleeding edge issue, you being the, being, you don't want to be the company necessarily that has to educate everybody on the new, uh, the new product. That's a pretty tough, um, tough sell. For sure. But I, I think ultimately when it, what it comes down to there is when you have a product that is function versus fashion, um, that's something that you can ultimately, um, people understand the functional aspect of what you're trying to solve. And so I think that that is a much more easier path to, to profitability. Not to say that you can't go down that other path, but it's going to take you many more years to become a profitable brand because your product assortment that you're bringing to market, you have to do that. There's that learning curve that you have to educate the consumer. Right, right. Okay. So first, what problem does the product solve? And then uh, what do we move on to from there? You've aced that. What's next? Yeah. Yeah. So what are you trying to solve first? So you have to look at what you're trying to solve. And then the next part is truly the aspect of the competitive landscape and the marketplace that's out there. So what are you trying to solve? So um, in essence of this, okay, I'm building a cooling product and I'm building a cooling product for a consumer that is, um, whether they are suffering from um, hydrophenosis, whether they have, whether they're going through menopause, whether they, um, you know, simply um, are outside during the summertime working a lot, um, whether they just sweat a lot. Um, ultimately, we're trying to solve that purpose. So that, that's really the foundational piece. The next step is really looking at, okay, if we're going to go to market, what's that product assortment going to look like? 
and what's going to make us differentiate versus somebody else that's out there from a competitive standpoint. So when we get to that point right there, we look at it and we say, well, there's a couple different routes you can take. You can take the route of, okay, there's a competitor out there. It may not be that large, but what we're going to do is we're going to offer the same features and benefits from a product standpoint at a lower price point. We're going to basically undercut the market and we're going to say, okay, if you were charging 35 or $40, we're going to be a 25 or $30 brand. Um, that's one way that you can pierce through and try to enter the market is more of a, a price to value perspective. Mm -hmm. um, the second way, um, and this is truly the way that, that I think is the best way to go about this is saying, okay, if there are other brands that are out there that are competing at a 35 to $40 price point, chances are the consumer is willing to spend 35 to $40. So how can you offer something to consumer at a $35 to $40 value that has more features and benefits that is going to make them, that is going to make you stand out to them versus the competition that's out there? I feel right. like that holds a lot more brand integrity there. Well, um, otherwise you also create this race to the bottom on pricing. Correct. Um, versus it, just maintain the status quo that's been established, what people are used to, and, and you know, add an extra feature, make a better product, that kind of thing. For sure. And it's much easier at that point to say, okay, here's what, here's like the, the better level price point of where we're at right now. We know that there's always opportunity to go lower. You're going to see discount stores out there left and right today in today's market with excess inventory and things that you see that are going to be really owning that, that good level price point standpoint. But if you can establish that better level price point, it's a lot easier to be able to go up to best level to start to tell more uh, premium and more pinnacle technology, as long as you're more at the better price point. You start low, it's a whole heck of a lot harder to get yourself up to a different tier. Yeah, yeah. Convince people that the 99 cent store is now on Rodeo Drive. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Uh, and it's just it's the nature of um, a lot of the market, what you're seeing today. And that's why you just have to be competitive with what you're offering the consumer. Um, so you're going to identify those differences. And then it sounds like you have to pick kind of what or not then you know you do, you're doing your competitive analysis and your research on the competition that's in the space and then identifying the differences i guess between the position that you want to take so you're kind of picking a position you want to take and for sure saying, what are the differences between them and us and and then um where do you go from there well and so i think from there in the lens of understanding um, a b2b standpoint you really have to think about the person who's really going to hold the buying control for this product that's going to go to market, which would ultimately be your buyer, right? And so you have to really think in the lens of what is that person going to think? Um, and at the end of the day, um, there's a lot of different like reports and things that I've read in terms of the buyer's mentality, but um, there's what people call really the 80-20 rule. And typically the 80-20 rule is looked at and said that 80% of buyers will go off of they're off the data. 20% is off their gut feel, right? And because if you're a buyer, you're there for a reason, you've had success. But then the flip side is there are some companies out there that are saying, hey, listen, if this is something you believe in, make 80% off your gut and 20% off the data. For me, I, dr I drive all my decisions with data. So I'm the flip-flop. I'm the first one I talked about, which is, hey, 80% is driven off data, 20% is off your gut. So if I can go into and speak to a buyer to be able to get this product placed, I need to show them why I'm better than someone else that's out there, what I'm solving. And not only am I trying to show them, you know, why I'm better and what I'm solving, I need to then show them the numbers to say, this is why it makes sense for you to be able to choose me over somebody else.
because it, whether I offer them a pricing um, discount with more margin to be able to mark up a little bit there, um, to have some, you know, some RTV plans built in place and things like that, much more complex business model. Um, and I won't go into all the details of that today, but um, there's a lot of different ways. And then also the 20% is aesthetically, a lot of the times buyers are in those positions because they, they understand what good quality product looks like. So aesthetically, how does your product assortment come to life? How are you looking at from a color perspective? How are you looking at? So it at can be a good quality product, but if it looks cheap, then you better have a lot of data to back it up kind of. Um, but sure. if it looks great, uh, people won't necessarily look under the hood. They're just like, yeah, yeah, this passes the smell test. It's what it's supposed to look like. It, it yep. seems good. We do that all the time in my industry. I, I deal with data regularly and people will, you know, show me what your data looks like. Show me your files. And you look at the file and I can tell by, you know, the first just looking at Excel spreadsheet without even recognizing what any of the data is in it if you usually if a company is if they have anything worth going so yeah that that first impression people get their gut calibrated and they they will use that quite a bit um, to uh, to make some decisions I also do a lot of demos every week and I guess in b2b we don't have a lot of impulse buys so it is a lot more the data and a lot less the gut because typically it's larger um, it's a larger purchase price. It's not your own money. You kind of need to justify it a little bit more. It's not like I, I feel like a Snickers and I'm in line, so I'm just going to grab a Snickers. Kinda, yeah, you kind of <laughs> have to have a purpose for it and, and whatnot. And I, I tell people when I'm on a demo, they're, they're asking me if I'm going to buy today. And I say, this isn't an impulse buy. If, if this was an impulse buy, I wouldn't have bothered. I wouldn't have scheduled a demo. I would have just bought it and then tried it out and canceled it if I didn't like it. Um, so yeah, I think in the B2B space, a, a lot more data is taken into account when people are looking at what products, uh, what products they want. They really need to see that it actually solves that problem. Looking good is nice, but, um, maybe get you, get you in the door there. So we've got the competitive analysis. We've identified the differences in where we want to be in our position and in the competition. And then, I mean, I suppose eventually it's just going to be, I'm going to keep pushing you forward. You're just going to say, and then you do your marketing and, and business and stuff like that. For sure, <laughs> when, yeah. when it comes to getting in the market, are there, are there more steps past that? Or now you, you've got your position and you just go with your marketing? Well, I think ultimately it's just making sure that you deliver the quality product. I think once you've done the competitive landscape, you've, you've identified who your consumer is, you've put together a great merchandising solution for your color flow that's coming in, whether you're looking at six month color, Q1 color, Q2 color, how that shows up at retail or in the market. Um, and then ultimately from that point on, uh, once those buys are placed, it really comes down to your supply chain and ensuring that you're delivering your product that's quality product, it's delivering on time, and it's at a cost that um, is making sure that your margins are in line. Um, a lot of that's all cooked by the time you get to that point, but there is that follow-up to make sure that you are delivering. Right. Now, what about, I see products sometimes where I think basically it's the same product as the market, but they found a, a margin somewhere different. They found, oh, we can, we can do this process in this way and it's going to shave off this cost and, and give us a different margin. You know, whether it's stores going to e-commerce and then Oh, you know, suddenly you have this huge physical building that you don't have to maintain and pay for and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, banks putting up ATMs instead of tellers, all these uh, efficiency processes. Um, is there a space in this process where really you're coming for, forward with the same product, the same everything, just efficiency? I and mean, maybe that means that you're outsourcing the manufacturing to a cheaper area, whatever it is. 
you can keep the same price point, you just have a, a larger profit margin. Yeah, so I, I think I think there's a couple different things that in the in the statement you just kind of made that you can talk about in terms of efficiencies. Um, one of the things that I'm personally seeing right now um, are that a lot of functions are being outsourced out. So meaning that to be able to reduce overhead as a company, you're looking at subject matter experts. So you're looking at whether an agent to be able to um, run your supply chain instead of having the overhead of having an entire sourcing and development team that's working underneath you, you can find an agent that will then actually uh, charge a commission of the price of the FOB of the goods to then, you know, what, whether it's 5%, 10%, whatever your number is that you negotiate with that agent, um, now you're only paying a percentage of your cost of goods to actually do your production of your product and all of your sourcing and development. So what you're seeing is people are trying to get more creative on how they're um, being able to go into the market because the market right now is truly a very price sensitive market. There is a lot of competition with, with different items that are out there. There are a thousand different polos you can buy. There are a lot of different routes you can go. So people do take that pricing approach and that's kind of the nature of what you're seeing on Amazon right now is you're seeing it where anybody can be anything they want to be because of how things have evolved. Um, but ultimately I'm seeing one um, people start to outsource services um, whether it be marketing services, whether it be sourcing and development services, and it becomes a percentage of your business rather than the overhead of having a direct team. Um, there are pros and cons to that. Obviously the um, knowing your brand and having a team that works all in one unified group, I think does um, hold its weight in itself. Um, but also if you're looking for a more margin and profit driven company, you might not necessarily be able to scale as fast, especially with a smaller startup. Um, so right. you're also seeing larger companies reduce their overhead by outsourcing things as well. So that's the nature of the marketplace right now across the board. Um, but then I don't know if you want to get me back on track with the other aspect of your question, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I was just, I was just curious on the, there's all the differences. You have your price, your quality, um, you know, yeah. fun functions, the service you provide, but it seems like efficiencies or the business model itself. You can have the same exact business as somebody else come in with the same exact product. You just, as long as there's a market there and you're basically going head to head with them on, on equal grounds, you'll win some, they'll win some, but when you win, you're making more profit. So maybe you oh. end up putting more of that profit into marketing. Now, instead of having, you know, the human resources expense, you outsource some functions and uh, you know, you find efficiencies in the business process that allow you to, um, invest more of your funds into things like marketing, more of your funds into other areas to be competitive, um, rather than having any any sort of function, price, any sort of uh, consumer-facing advantage. Your advantage is really in the business structure itself. Yeah, no, and and I think ultimately what it comes down to there is those are all efficiencies that you can improve. But my personal point of view is that what is going to get the consumer to come back and buy again? because it is a competitive market that's out there. So at the end of the day, if we've delivered a product to a consumer, to a buyer, to an account, and it doesn't, stand, it doesn't hold its own to the um, value that we're putting into that product, they're not gonna come back and buy again from us. So I've gotta make sure that product really drives the discussion across the board. If we're, if we're building a cooling product, that shirt better cool and do what it says it's doing because at the end of the day, that is, that, that's our backbone, that's what we stand on. And so ultimately, um, I feel like for a company to grow, you've got to be putting your money where your mouth is 
um, when it comes down to the quality level of product that you're putting into the market. You can improve your efficiencies and improve your margins. And as you scale, economies of scale are going to kick in and you're going to be able to, um, you know, get your costs lower and continue to grow. But at the end of the day, you're only as good as your product that you're giving to the consumer. Right, right. So to, to really have, I mean, I guess if, if your business model is, hey, we can buy a bunch of, uh, let's go in consumer here again, uh, buy a bunch of uh, cans of dented soup and sell them at a lower cost and people won't care. And so we'll have clients. Um, that's, you know, that's not really the type of business model that we're looking at here. You're looking for the quality, the function, um, innovations in those areas, basically. 100%. All right. Well, um, I think uh, we've been flying through here. I want to take a quick break. After the break, we'll get back and we'll dig into each one of these areas. So I want to really dig into the competitive analysis specifically and, and you know, maybe a little bit uh, into some of the other areas as, as well. Thank you for tuning into the If You Market podcast, and uh, we'll be back in just a minute. G2.com is revolutionizing the way businesses discover, buy, and manage software, technology, and related services. Today, more than 3 million users per month rely on G2.com to help them find and buy the best software for their businesses. G2 has 700,000 plus customer reviews and 100 million in total funding, invested by IVP, Accel Partners, LinkedIn, Pritzker Group, Emergence Capital, and more. Visit sell.g2.com to build a brand buyer C on the world's largest marketplace for B2B technology and services. Welcome back to the Ify Market Podcast. I'm your host, Sky Cassidy. We are speaking today with Eric Haas about uh, entering a market with a new product and uh, the competitive analysis is kind of what I want to dig into here now. Eric, can you uh, jump back to competitive analysis for me and kind of break that down some? Yeah, so I think it really comes down to a few different components. So the first component I'll talk about when me person, when I personally, I identify the competitive market that's out there is saying, okay, well, who are your big competitors? You have direct competitors and you have indirect competitors. So from an Under Armour standpoint, a direct competitor would probably be a Nike or an Adidas, right? And those are pretty much expected, but there are many different subset categories of consumers that are just looking for a wicking t-shirt that's out there. So, you know, whether you're getting something that's private label from, you know, big um, sporting goods, whether you're getting something that is like Columbia, which might not necessarily seem like a direct competitor. There is a lot of competition for a product like a t-shirt. Right? Or even so, just a shirt at all. Yeah. It doesn't have to have a specific property to it, but just a shirt. And somebody might say, Oh, why get that one when I can get this one? And it, it feels really nice. Correct. So I would say direct, would be, direct competitors would be brands and indirect competitors would be people that offer a like type product. Mm -hmm. um, so then when you look across that and you really start to map it out and look at really what does the what does the landscape look like if you have your pricing on one side and you have your brands across the other um, and you're really kind of pe peppering it all together about where they're offering their products it really comes down to say okay well I know that I'm not going to try I'm, I know that I'm not going to be able to appeal to everybody that these guys are appealing to because when I try to appeal to everyone inherently I appeal to no one right. especially so coming into a new market like if you're the big name in the market you might have that many products and that much reach, but coming into a new market, you really got to go niche. Correct. And so you have to refine that. So it's more of a refined focus to say, okay, well, who truly is my consumer and what are they getting from these other brands that I can offer to them or I can make better than what they're currently getting? Well, so my with the new feature function too, if there's, if there's an underserved or unserved group as well, you can say, here's this group that isn't being taken care of that I mean, that's, that's the kind of slam dunk because then you just, you go to those people and they want what you have. But 
at what point that's on the one extreme where you say these people want this and it doesn't exist. Nobody's providing it for them. And maybe it's some subset of something that exists and you're saying, Hey, they're using this product, but it's not made for them. You know, if, if there's only men's deodorant or something, you say, Hey, I'm going to make a woman's deodorant because there's no such thing. I'm sure at some point in time that existed and somebody came along with it and all the women were like, Whoa, one for us. Um, I know in the CRM business, there's a lot of really niche CRMs and people say, yeah, there's a general CRM, but this company makes a CRM that's just for my specific business. And at some point there wasn't uh, there wasn't one just for their business. They had to go with a, um, just a, a general generic across the board CRM. So on one extreme, you have the, these people aren't being served at all. All I have to do is make the product for them because I've identified that. And then on the other extreme, maybe you have kind of everybody's, being served um, and you it seems at that point you have different functions you have to come in on you can't it can't really just be about who you're targeting or or the, you know a specific underserved geography or something then you're really getting down to the you have to provide something new because you're gonna have to take business away from these people that are being served properly by their existing, existing brands. yeah so when you look at that side of the business I think it comes down to three fundamentals price value and trust. And I think when you look at those three values, um, from a price standpoint, how are you priced against your competitors? Because if you're coming in and you're a no-name brand and you're coming in and you've got some big hitters that are out there, um, you've got to be able to have someone want to take a chance on you. From a value standpoint, what features and benefits are you building within that product that makes your product stand out? So at Arctic Cool, we're looking at everything from all of our products across the board, um, come with our Hydrofreeze X, which is our cooling technology. Everything comes with our active wick, which is our wicking technology. All of our products are treated with antimicrobial for anti-odor. We also offer all of our products with four-way stretch for extra mobility. Um, and lastly, all of our products pass UPF 50 plus certified for sun protection. So from a, from a value standpoint, price to value standpoint, we're offering all of those features and benefits at comparable price points as all of your major brands that are out there. Um, and when you look at what's happening in today's day and age, um, Cooling means many different things. Cooling can mean staying cool in the sun. Cooling can mean and being protected from the sun. Cooling can mean wicking. Cooling can mean having the ability to stretch. You can go back to the old school cool, which is cooling just mean you look really good. Yeah, absolutely. And, And that's ultimately what we want our consumer to feel. We want them to be able to feel cool in our product ultimately. And so I think that that's something from a price value standpoint. So we talked about price. We talked about value. But ultimately, it's that trust factor. Um, how are you going to get that consumer to trust in you? Um, is, and is, I there think, a point, is there a point when you're, um, when you're doing the competitive analysis where, you know, you say there's not an unserved group here. And maybe you take it all the way to the other extreme where you say there isn't even room in this, in this space. Like you don't have, like maybe you had an idea that you thought was good and then you do your research, you find out other people are doing it already and, it, and it's just not worth trying to get into the space. I, I do think that there are aspects of that. But one thing I will always say is that when you actually refine an idea or a thought, you're going to come up with barriers. You're going to see that there is going to be competition. Are there still gray space opportunities that are out there? Absolutely. Don't, don't get me wrong. There is. But at the end of the day, I feel like when you look at a competitive landscape for a product assortment, you're always going to have some element of a competition. And if you don't, as soon as you enter the market, you're going to have somebody else that's going to be competing with you immediately. 
And or, I, it's, or it's just a bad idea, so that's why there's no market. <laughs> correct, or it's a bad idea, and you're basically on an island on yourself. Um, I'm sure that the person who created the pencil and created the eraser um, thought that those are the greatest ideas ever, and then somebody came in and said, hey, let's put them together and make a pencil with an eraser. Um, and, yeah, right, right, mind blown. Um, but at the end of the day, um, there are a lot of different things like that. And so I feel like the one thing I would tell people is ultimately, if you feel strongly about something, um, understand that you're not always the consumer and there may not be many people like you that are out there. So don't get caught up drinking your own Kool-Aid because yeah. it's very easy to get caught up drinking your own Kool-Aid on a lot of these ideas and concepts that you're so passionate about. But if we go back to that 80-20 rule, 80% of what you're doing should be driven by numbers. And I would even go as far to say um, when, you're, when you're looking at the competitive landscape across the board, the numbers almost should be 100% at that point. If you're going to try to enter into a space, make sure the numbers are guiding you. So, yeah, you've got, I mean, you've got the competitive analysis to get into a space here, but, and you'd mentioned this early on as well, the customer analysis is kind of part of that, especially, I guess, if you have a product or a big part of your, um, the difference that you're looking at. Uh, the, the difference you identify between your product and the others is a, um, you know, a new function or something like that that's supposed to give you, um, you know, interest from the, from the clients. You've really got to look at them and say, are they going to be interested? And you're saying, don't fall in love with your own. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm taking this product already exists. I'm going to add this onto it or do this to it to make it better for people. But if they don't think that's better, um, so along with the competitive analysis, you kind of need to do some customer analysis if you're it's, really feature-based. Well, within side of competitive analysis, I feel like is also understanding the consumer behavior. And I feel like understanding the consumer and their needs and wants as well. That goes into it. Just because there's a product that's out there doesn't mean necessarily that that product is servicing what that consumer wants. So I think it kind of brings it full circle is that you're, you're seeing there's an opportunity, but now you have to make sure that there's demand for that opportunity. Does somebody want to buy that? So in competitive analysis, you want to have some market research there. You want to make sure that- A thousand percent. A thousand percent. Even if that's going to a local park and finding 10 people, 20 people that you think are your consumer set that you're going after and you see them wearing a light type product or something similar that you're, that you're interested in going, just talk to people. You'd be surprised by talking to people, the amount of data you would actually get that while it's not necessarily quantitative data, it's more of that qualitative aspect. And that does, um, that does really bring light and color and that extra, um, that extra 5% that you need to be able to make a decision. So I guess for this, for this podcast, we'd say go to a business park and talk to people. Uh, yeah, for sure. Go to a business park and talk to somebody. I mean, there's, there are people, people want to let you know what they need. And I feel like that's one of the biggest flaws for a lot of different companies out there are that they're not necessary. And again, you can't, you can't be the one-stop shop where you create something for everybody. You're never going to be able to keep everybody happy. But ultimately when you look at it and you start to really think about what are all these requests and things that are coming in, you can make a good educated decision based on that, on the direction you want to take and fill a void that's not being currently offered. Asking marketers to talk to people is a tough one. Marketers are uh, frequently salespeople who didn't like cold calling. So they said, <laughs> where do I not have to talk to customers? Um, but yeah, the, the market research part. Okay, good. So you want to fold that in there. Um, I want to make sure I get to a couple things here before we run out of time. Uh, first off, major do's and don'ts. So you're looking to enter a market with a new product, 
you have a, a couple of each things to make sure you do this? I mean, we've gone been going over, I guess, the do, a lot of the do's, but any any particular little nuggets for people? Yeah, I'd say ultimately, um, one of the things you do, and I guess it also goes into something that you sh that that you don't is make sure before you're going into any market, you understand the cost associated to be able to um, go into that that market space. Um, ultimately, I feel like it's the kiss of death for a lot of brands and a lot of companies that say, hey, this is a great idea. We're going to run as fast as we can and we're going to try to be first to market. We think it's a great idea. Pump the brakes, pump the right. brakes and think it through thoroughly because you need to understand your margins. You need to understand what marketing costs are associated. Literally run um, you know, a P&L statement and go through everything and see what makes the most sense for you to go into that market. Again, like I said at the beginning, the numbers will make sense. If there's margin to be made in there, there's an opportunity and you're passionate about it, go for it. But if you go through it all and you're like, man, it's going to cost me, you know, um, 85% of my overall retail cost of this to be able to market it. Chances are my FOB isn't 15% of that good. And so I'm going to be losing money on this whole entire project until I can reduce costs for there. Right. So you might go out of business before you even get enough traction with just too high of a burn rate because you got excited about your product kind of. Yeah. So do the research before understand that um, not only does the research come in um, qualitative ways where you're talking to consumers and you're identifying the market space, but there's also a lot of quantitative um, information that you should be doing to do your homework before you do go into market. So that's 100% of do. It's also guess, a don't because don't just run. One thing I, I, I'd add on to that, I think is uh, assume some things aren't going to go as perfectly as you think they are when you're, when you're so oh. into what you're doing. And uh, you know, when you do your projections, just assume a lot of failure in there. Uh, Building a buffer. Yeah. Build do your in, projection on worst case scenario. kind of. <laughs> I would say always, always build in at least a 25 to 30% buffer of, uh, Hey, this is, I didn't expect this to come up. And yeah. some people may say that that's light um, because there are a lot of unexpected things that you wouldn't think that do come up. Um, but at the end of the day, make sure you do have that buffer built in there. Typically when we do a projection here on something like, you know, pushing a new, a new program, a new product, something like that, we'll do a, here's the expected projections and how things are going to run, but then what's the tolerable worst case scenario. So obviously worst case scenario is just, you know, everything goes bad and, and you're out of business or whatnot, but what's the worst case scenario? What's the, you know, the lowest bar you can, this would survive and, and still, still make it through kind of scenario. And it's, it's shocking how often things um, are closer to that worst case scenario than, than your starry eyed, uh, you know, uh, hockey stick graph, uh, scenario. For sure. Okay. Um, can you give us, um, maybe a couple, or I guess first and say, do you have, do you have any more uh, do's and don'ts for people? I would say ultimately the only other thing that I would, that I would just throw out there is you can get really caught up in, especially in a startup aspect, you can get really, um, the work-life balance is very, very, very challenging. And so what I would say is always make sure you take some time to be able to decompress and let yourself think clearly because when you're going at such a rapid pace and you're zigging and zagging and pivoting and sometimes things, you know, 50% of the time things don't go as planned. And so don't get frustrated. As long as you're confident and you have a strong fundamental business plan, take the time to decompress and get yourself back on that plan because at the end of the day, um, that's what's going to guide you and emotions sometimes can get in the way of success. Yeah. Go for a walk. Don't don't just get tied up. You get you get too tight inside a concept, a business, something like that, and you can kind of lose focus of of reality. 
I listen to a lot of podcasts, but I always make sure I have one or two kind of entertainment style podcasts because I'm always listening to business and marketing and say, you know, those kind of things you get kind of, uh, they get swampy in your head with it. Excellent. Uh, excellent advice there. Take some, take some personal time, different size companies. Now you mentioned startups a lot. They're large companies are, are doing these kind of things. I guess they're going to already, they're going to have processes in place. They have a lot more, a lot more leeway than, than a small company has on, on a program. I mean, I guess they're going to maybe cut a program if it's not working, but when you're talking about a startup, that is, that is the whole program. Does this, are there any distinct differences for different size companies on how to, to execute the market entry? Um, I, I do believe there is. Um, if I use a, you know, $5 billion um, cap company like an Under Armour, um, and even larger than that now, um, you know, to enter, to enter into a space, you may have a product manager, you may have, um, you know, a merchandising team that firmly believe in something. And what you're up against is that there are um, corporate hierarchies to be able to get that idea or concept across the market or across, across the finish line and into the market. So whether you're dealing with um, is that product the right product? I mean, you can build a business case for why it would be, but for some reason it just may not make sense from an overall corporate um, standpoint of how you're going to market with something. So that's one mm-hmm. aspect is that there are a lot more barriers when you're dealing with um, a, you know, a massive $5 billion company. But when you are dealing in a smaller company in its infancy, um, if you want to do something, um, go for it. And I think that that's the best thing is being an entrepreneur um, and being able to say, hey, if I believe in something and the numbers make sense and here's what my competitive analysis said and here's what I'm thinking and here's how it all rolls up, you have a runway to be able to go do what you want to do. And so that's where I think the biggest differences are. Um, both are fundamentally driven through the same research, research comp, um, and competitive analysis that's out there, but ultimately then it comes down to execution and it is a lot harder in major corporations to get something across the finish line. It could be the greatest thing since sliced bread and there could be one person that just doesn't see eye to eye with that and then that gets nixed. Or when you're in a small company in its infancy, um, you're much more nimble and you can really start to cater to more to what an account would want. So in the, in the large companies, you, kind of, you have to sell the concept, you have to sell the process and what's going on the executives to people above you and then in the smaller companies you I guess you you have to kind of sell it to the people that are working for you and with you because you know in a startup you don't want your talent jumping ship because they they don't believe in it anymore for sure everybody has to be driven towards the same goals and I think at the end of the day um, you know even with a corporate corporate big corporation we're looking at that and saying hey there might be one person that you have to get through and then it's the next person and then it's the next person and then and by the time that's happened somebody else has already entered the market <laughs> it's not Wait. just the customers you're trying to sell to. You've got to sell internally as well. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Is there any particular uh, tech stack for this kind of a thing for market research and anything like that, that you can advise people to any sites that are, that are good for this kind of stuff? Um, so ultimately a lot of what I've done in my career, um, I'll say that Google is really an interesting um, animal in itself. Um, you can pretty much find anything. Um, I like to actually read a lot. Um, I've read um, Shoe Dog. And so I've read some, some books that you look at more entrepreneurs that are out there. Um, and you, I mean, you look at how Nike started and everything, and it's kind of a crazy ride to see where it was to where it is today. Um, but first and foremost, I would say I'm, there's never a day that goes by that I'm not trying to read or learn something that I didn't know the day before. And so it's not necessarily a specific text. I would say if there's a topic that you want to educate yourself more on, 
Google it. Take, you know, see, see what it's all about. I think, I think, uh, well, not even a plug. We didn't even plan that, right? We didn't even plan that. Um, I was putting on an undershirt today. I saw that one. I said, why not? Why not? Yeah. Why not wear a white shirt with a message on it? There's a free plug for Google. Now their stock's going to go through the roof. I know, right? Because we talked about it today. I'm sure they care, huh? <laughs> but ultimately, no, Google it because there's not a day. You can never stop learning. And if I was to tell you today that I'm an expert in my field and what I'm doing, tomorrow that could change. because You never know what's going to be happening, especially with the evolution of the market. And anybody who told you that they're an expert tomorrow, that they'd be an expert the next day and the day after that, they'd be lying to you because it's continuously evolving. And so always um, just continue to educate yourself on topics. And a lot of the times bloggers, um, are really good ways to look at it because it brings another perspective. You may not always agree with something. Podcasts even, like podcasts, if you're yeah. not listening to this podcast and you're not going to hear me say this, but <laughs> you're not doing exactly. your job as a marketer if you aren't listening. Not for me. I don't know what I'm talking about, but our guests come on. They're going to give you great stuff, keep you up to date. Now, I think you've got a pretty good head on your shoulder, so don't don't cut yourself short. All right. I think um, it's time to, with that, that's a great uh, line to end on. Um, where can people find you? Learn more about you, about your company, Arctic Cool. I imagine go to LinkedIn, type in the name, it comes up. Make sure you put an E in it, H-A-W-E-S. The show notes for this show will have your information as well. But anything else you want to put out there? Yeah, so ultimately, um, anybody who's interested to learn more, um, please feel free to reach out. Um, my, like I said at the very beginning of this podcast, um, I'm always looking to try to be able to help young entrepreneurs, people who um, have a great idea or a great concept and help to guide them. So you can find me on LinkedIn, um, E-R-I-C-H-A-W-E-S, um, and about our company, Arctic Cool. Um, so you can check us out. We're 100% um, direct-to-consumer. It's www.arcticool.com. Um, we're the world's first revolutionary cooling apparel and accessory brand. Um, so whether you're a mom, you know, or dad taking your kids to soccer practice, or whether you're somebody who's an active marathoner, or somebody who's just in the backyard barbecuing during the summertime over Memorial Day weekend, or 4th of July, um, or even just going to the gym anytime around the year. Um, we offer a product that um, is built to be able to cool you and make you more comfortable day in and day out. Question for you on that. I get sick of white undershirts. And so yeah. I, I actually have some... Uh, some shirts that I use as undershirts that are more like, like your product that are kind of a sports uh, shirt. And I, and I yeah. find them really nice. Do you guys make anything for, you know, as an undershirt for the office? Yeah. So we, ha we, we do see a lot of requests for that. We do service a lot of um, the armed forces and police forces that are wearing your um, protective vest and things like that mm -hmm. underneath and they're wearing our product underneath it. Um, our product will work and we always tell people to size down one size if you're looking for a little bit more of a compressive fit. Um, ultimately, you're going to get the best results for our product if there's an element of airflow that does come in contact with you during that process. Um, but all of our studies do suggest and show that as the minute that there's some element of perspiration or moisture that hits our garment, um, the cooling effects drastically start to decrease or the cooling effects increase and your temperature decreases. I don't have any issue, but there isn't, you know, some people have the sweaty pits office issue. If they can get yeah. a shirt that can help them with that, then uh, that might be a good uh, untapped niche there. For the, sure. Even when you look um, at some of the, um, so like multiple sclerosis. So that yeah. disease itself, um, people that have at least one degree of temperature that increases will cause symptoms that may be um, stable and they won't even have them. Um, it'll cause those symptoms to come back. And so um, we do find our product helping in the, the medical industry as well. 
Excellent. You can find the show notes for this episode and more information on Eric Haas at ifyoumarket.com. Please do share the podcast around. Keep listening, subscribe, give us good reviews on iTunes, all that kind of stuff. And uh, on behalf of the If You Market team and Eric Haas of Arctic Cool, thank you for listening to the If You Market podcast, where we believe if you market the shit out of it with competitive analysis and new product marketing, I don't know how to market put that research. into our tag. <laughs> I don't know how to put that into our tagline. Um, if you market the shit out of it, they will come. The If You Market podcast is brought to you by Mountaintop Data. And at Mountaintop Data, we're all about data for B2B marketing. Our goal is to improve the quality, depth, and coverage of our clients' targeted marketing data while removing the technical pain of accessing and implementing data. We help with everything from new target contacts to appending and cleaning existing data, all with the goal to free you and your team up to focus on creating great marketing experiences. Check us out online at mountaintopdata.com and sign up for our new top data search tool and get free access to search our database of over 30 million business contacts. Use the code hashtag IYM when signing up and get 200 free credits. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.